Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. I cut strange fruit. No, Joe, I want to sing the damn song, all right? The club advertises it. People pay good money to come here and hear me sing it. I've told you a hundred times, people in high places don't want you singing that song. And I've asked you over a hundred times, what people, Joe? That's newly minted Oscar nominee Andra Day as Lady Day, Billie Holiday, in the United States versus Billie Holiday, a film as much about that song, Strange Fruit, as it is about the singer. The U.S. versus Billie Holiday is part of this week's Oscars homework edition of the show. We've got a review, plus thoughts on fellow nominees My Octopus Teacher, The Mole Agent, and Pieces of a Woman. That and more. Want to hear my Billie Holiday impression, Josh? I think I'm good with Andra Day. Thanks, though. Ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting with Josh Larson. I'm Adam Kempinar. We are down to the final four films in this year's Film Spotting Madness. Best of the 80s. 18 Oscar nominations between those four movies. Even a couple of wins, but none of them, notably, winners of the Best Picture Oscar. Mm, a tease. So the, the Film Spotting voting public going to maybe a little contrarian with their choices or populist. We'll have to see. We will see. Podcast listeners will get more Madness Talk later in the show, Elite 8 results, and those final four matchups. Radio listeners, you can always find the full version of the show at filmspotting.net or wherever you get your podcasts. But first, let's talk this year's Oscar race, specifically the Best Actress nominees. Now, two of the five nominees we have discussed on the show, Viola Davis in Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and Frances McDormand in Nomadland. A few more here. Carrie Mulligan, nominated for Promising Young Woman. We didn't give a full proper review to that movie, but we have both seen it and uh, have referenced it here and there. And I think are both fans of Mulligan's performance, Adam. So that leaves two that we needed to catch up on. Vanessa Kirby in Pieces of a Woman and Andre Day in the United States versus Billie Holiday. Get her off that stage. They won't let me sing nowhere, no clubs, no money, no nothing. You gotta understand, baby, right now I'm in a situation. Would you say we could beat this, Billy? I need some now. Blood on the leaves. I admitted it last week. 
When I was prepping for our top 10 films of 2020 show in December and our Chicago Film Critics Association ballot choices, I knew Pieces of a Woman star Vanessa Kirby was garnering a lot of acclaim and was considered a strong contender for Best Actress. And yet, I always found some other movie to watch instead. Why? Well, here's the simple plot summary that so unnerved me. A heartbreaking home birth leaves a woman grappling with the profound emotional fallout, isolated from her partner and family by a chasm of grief. So, sue me. Dead baby. Emotional fallout. Isolation. Chasm of grief. If I didn't absolutely have to watch that, I wasn't going to. This week, I kind of had to. And guess what? I still didn't. I watched three other Oscar blind spots including two I hadn't even heard of prior to the nominations and put pieces off to the very last minute, at which point life did legitimately intervene to prevent me from being able to fit it in. Little did I know that Lee Daniels, the United States versus Billie Holiday, would likely offer an even more harrowing experience in terms of both filmmaking and watching a woman suffer as she navigates heroin addiction, a multitude of abusive men, racial bias, and the persecution of the FBI because of the dangers of jazz music, Josh, it's the devil's work, you know, and the political message of her ballad, Strange Fruit, which opens with the lines, Southern trees bear a strange fruit, blood on the leaves and blood at the root, black bodies swinging in the southern breeze, strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. Josh, which performer... Holiday's Andre Day or Kirby was best supported by her director and material. Was one character's on-screen agony more worth any suffering you might have endured as a viewer? Boy, uh, I guess the easy way to answer that is to ask which movie I liked better. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I have a clear choice, and that is Pieces of a Woman, even though I think there are some issues there. I think there are more issues to the Billie Holiday film, and it's a case of watching an extremely talented actor um, almost struggle against the material in mm-hmm. some ways is what I found there. But your description and and your um, focusing on the suffering is exactly right, Adam. I think what looking at these performances in tandem reveals is that they're both good, um, but they both follow I don't know if the performances follow a formula. I would say the nominations follow a formula, and suffering is absolutely part of that. You have, in Kirby's case, the birthing scene, which is, by my count, about 23 minutes. Oh, no. Um, Yes. Yeah. I mean, I might be off, but not by much there. I I checked the timestamps. And uh, Cornela Mundrutsu, the the director here who made White God, which is also harrowing in very different ways— almost stages this as a single take floating through this couple's apartment and you can see where there's little you know cheats here or there but that's the immersive mm-hmm. and it's almost voyeuristic approach that he's going for in that um in that sequence and so you're right there with Kirby and so I see that it has that suffering she also gets one of the things I don't like about the movie is it it kind of climaxes in in the form of a courtroom drama, a contrived courtroom drama, and Kirby gets a speech there. So you've got, you know, these these formulaic elements to an Oscar, quote unquote Oscar performance. Now, in the case of Andre Day, you touched on it. I was it is such a bodily portrayal of Billy Holiday in ways that are um 
Yeah, it's it almost makes you wonder if there is some sort of exploitation going on here. And it brings me back to that director's previous work. This is Lee Daniels here, uh, a film that I liked quite a bit, Precious. And Precious was about an obese, illiterate 16-year-old girl from Harlem who was being sexually abused by her father. I didn't find that film exploitative, but I know there were accusations of it at the time. And now watching Billie Holiday and how uh, Holiday is presented by Daniels, I wonder if maybe those people were were right. And I was I was missing that. Mm-hmm. So we've got a lot of suffering here. Um, here's the other a- aspect, though, that makes these formulaic Oscar nominations. These are both performative performances, and that, by that I mean Day has the Billie Holiday concert scenes and how many we have other you know musical performers in the best actor nominees this is something voters love mm-hmm. um nothing wrong with that i think the concert performances are some of her best scenes in the movie but it's one of those formulaic elements and then in kirby's case you get that courtroom speech that i talked about it's a piece of performance within a performance so these are both good performances tailor-made for the oscars no surprise that they got that sort of attention um I, you know, especially in the case of Day, who was a real discovery for me, mm-hmm. um, I don't know that I have any any complaints about it, but they just check those boxes in the way that appeal to Oscar voters. But for me, somewhat take the mystery out of their performances, too. You know, you can. And this is the problem with seeing the perform, performances like this in the wake of nominations is it's it's like your eye sees that like, oh, sure, that totally i see why they got this whereas if you came into it fresh without any of this sort of award season pressure you might be able to uh, appreciate it a little bit more in a vacuum Mm. the number of times watching the united states versus billy holiday i thought some variation of no don't or wait are you serious and to be clear it wasn't about the choices any of the characters were making it was in response only to what lee daniels was doing and his choices this is bad music biopic bingo and we mark every box there's the awkward unnecessary storytelling framing device here it's in the form of a recorded conversation with reginald lord divine i want to talk strange fruit yes strange fruit My audience wants to know. You keep getting in trouble for it, but you are determined to keep singing it. Troublemaker. You ever seen a lynching? The whole structure here is a mess, even with the kind of inventive but really poorly executed focus on Strange Fruit to represent both Holiday's conviction and America's racial injustice. We get the traumatic flashbacks providing insight into the artist's psychology, their self-loathing and self-destructiveness and self-medication. Of course, that's where all the sex and drugs comes in. And the production design here, along with the cinematography and the editing, when not doing something exasperating with focus or color or movement, this really is an everything and the kitchen sink approach to filmmaking here, it feels mostly like you're in a museum exhibit. None of this really feels like a real space with real people, unfortunately. You also get the didactic pronouncements, either by the artist or someone close to the artist, neatly articulating her importance. Essentially, it's like the best lines from the artist's obituary get somehow inserted into the mouths of some of these people at just the right moment when it's most needed. 
And you're right. You alluded to it. Bad music biopic bingo also means that you're going to get a striking musical sequence or two. And we get that here. And we also get what feels like a really impressive lead performance. Lady Day's pain and incomparable talent feel authentic. Thanks solely to Andre Day. Everything around her feels so shamefully inauthentic that it dishonors both. That was the sense I had watching it. I think that's fair. There's a lot of awkwardness here, and it's the filmmaking techniques, the avalanche of techniques that we get that is that is really questionable. In one sense, I get the temptation because he's he's trying to evoke cinematically here what it might have been like to hear Holiday perform. And and you know, if you think about that in movie terms, her voice, and I think Day, you know, captures that. It has it's almost the equivalent of a slow, druggy dissolve Billy Holiday's voice. You know, you can see those two techniques, um, those two artistic elements coming together in a way that makes sense. But Daniels is always piling on. It's not mm-hmm. only that he'll use a dissolve, it's that he's then also going to incorporate slow motion or, or alternating film stock and the other things that you mentioned. How about yeah. during her performance, it's a powerhouse performance of Ain't Nobody's Business If I Do. The bizarre choice to replace her singing with this a bit of the melodramatic score from the movie. I mean, that's that's just an example of of you know just get out get out of your own way and let let day sing and let holiday's music being represented in this format do the work for you. And too often the movie is trying to do extra work at the same time. Mm-hmm. Now, what day brings to it? It's not just the the concert scenes. I mean, I think um, she's. She's totally, you can tell, and she has a background as a musical artist, of course, so she's fully feeling the music on stage. She brings that to the stage. But what really struck me was sort of the the confidence mixed with the corruptibility that she had as Billie Holiday. You know, this is not someone who was going to give this iconic portrayal of a saint. Like, she really wanted to dig in mm-hmm. to Holiday's difficulties. And the problem is, I think I think Daniels was almost too eager to magnify some of those things totally. at the same time. And so it's, it's just too much. But I loved what really impressed me with Day. We talked about line readings when we did our Anthony Hopkins show, Top 5 Anthony Hopkins performances. And for someone who's a relatively new actor, Man, did she have the dexterity of a pro for some of these line readings. I think about the one she says to, uh, I forget which other character it is, but a, a confidant, after we've seen a flashback, again, somewhat awkwardly presented of the worst of her past, her childhood, things mm-hmm. she's endured. And this person is just kind of overwhelmed with what they've witnessed or learned about her. She just says, be careful with this feeling. And in one instance, she managed to manages to capture like the helplessness that she feels about having experienced that, but also the control she's managed over it as an adult years later. Be careful with this feeling. It's love right here, baby. I don't love you back. It was just really impressive how Day captures all that in a little line reading. So I think she's the real deal. And mm-hmm. I'll say this about the movie. It will make me listen to Billie Holiday's music less casually than I did because I was not aware, even though I had heard Strange Fruit, I was not aware of the the background to that song. No, I wasn't either. And, and you know, I was aware, of course, of, of Holiday's 
drug addiction. And so much of her music resonated that way, along with songs like, you know, Ain't Nobody's Business If I Do, A Complicated Relationship with Abusive Men. So I knew that stuff, but I still listen to her casually. And I don't think I'm going to do that after watching United States versus Billie Holiday. Now, maybe any halfway or quarterway decent right. movie about Billie Holiday would make me do that. And, I, you know, I'm also just glad, really, that I discovered Andre Day because her music on her own, now that I'm listening to it, is fantastic stuff. So if you're looking for positives out of this movie, there's a couple. <laughs> well done, Josh. They are hard to find here. And I think you make a really valid point there that anyone watching this probably will consider Billie Holiday's music differently. And that then is a positive to take away. But one of those examples of a scene that speaks to exactly what you were just talking about in terms of Lee Daniels always pushing it just a little bit too far, or there being kind of these clashes with the material in the filmmaking and Andre Day's performance and what it embodies in the filmmaking. There's one scene where she's finally performing after she's been in jail and she doesn't have her cabaret license yet, and it's kind of a triumphant return to the stage. And she's had this encounter with the club owner, and as she's really getting sizzling on stage, Daniels cross-cuts that with her then having sex with that club owner, who we understand she's going to develop a relationship with, but we see her having sex with him in his office, and it's done in a way that is totally degrading, yet the way it's cut into the music... It's almost like the scene we've all watched a million times in any biopic where things are finally actually really clicking for the artist and they kind of are back on track and things are going really well. And this also contradicts how Daniels uses sex even later in the film and the degrading way or not degrading way to lovers can engage with each other. But in that moment, I just had no sense of what Daniels was truly trying to express. And I also didn't buy, in terms of the stuff surrounding this, we haven't even talked about it yet, I didn't buy any second of the machinations swirling around her. The behavior of Jimmy Fletcher, who's played as well as he can be by a really talented actor, Trevante Rhodes, who we know, of course, from Moonlight, his relationship with Holiday, the behavior of Harry Anslinger, this kind of cartoon villain played by Garrett Hedlund. It suffers a little bit. Now, this is a much better movie, but it suffers a little bit from the same thing Judas and the Black Messiah does, which is this kind of fractured point of view where we spend too much time with the betrayer and also with the people who are actually persecuting her. It's done a little better, I think, in Judas with Jesse Plemons than it is here. Much with better. Hedlund, much better. But still, there really is no reason in my mind we need to watch this movie play out from his perspective ever. Yeah, I'd agree. It's it's not very coherently structured material. Absolutely. And, and I would say to your descriptions of how sex is handled in the movie, the, the defense, the devil's advocate is that for someone like Holiday, um, it had to have been an incredibly complicated relationship having, uh, you know, as we learn, having grown up in a brothel. I mean, th this is like sex is not ever going to be a easy thing that means one thing for this woman. We get that sense. Now, for us to fully understand that and not be confused in the way you describe, which I agree we are, you would need you would need more confident filmmaking, which I don't think is what we get. So that that may be the psychological um, underpinnings to what the movie is going for, but I don't think it pulls it off. My daughter came into this world.
by the time that she did. Now to jump back to pieces of a woman, and yeah, if I if I have a performance that I prefer, it would be Days. Uh, but I do think Kirby is is quite good in Pieces of a Woman, and one of the things that um, she captures that really resonated with me is beyond that opening scene. Um, it's later when you see that she's playing this woman; she has a prickliness to her, and you get the sense that. Uh, this woman just being alive is an irritation now in the aftermath of this and in not being able to process it with her partner, uh, played by Shia LaBeouf, uh, you know, she just, it's almost like any interaction with her is like an electric shock to her body. So there's, you know, and Kirby is someone we've seen in, in the uh, mission impossible film. She was in uh, Hobbs and Shaw where I thought she was quite good. And of course uh, I've enjoyed her in the crown as well. So a lot of talent there. And I think it's a good performance, but to go back to where we started, I think it was elevated to this level by those qualities of suffering and performativeness, Mm -hmm. which are maybe not the strong suit of this role. Well, we've settled the great stake debate with a poll question on our website. Maybe the next question should be, (laughs) will Adam actually watch Pieces of a Woman? And I'm just going to (laughs) say your comments about the movie did not help urge me in that direction. No, I, I mean, it's... Again, I am very slightly positive on it because of what I think it's trying to do. I think there's a certain amount, others might find it exploitative, to use that word again, but I think there's a certain amount of bravery here in in trying to ask a really, really difficult question. You know, how, how does one find meaning in the aftermath of senseless loss? I think the movie is genuinely interested in exploring that. I think Kirby's performance is deeply interested in, in depicting that. Um, it's a little clumsy in how, how it goes about it. it. Whenever it loses focus on that and becomes wider, becomes this extended family drama, as I said, becomes this court case, um, it starts to lose that focus and loses its power. It's also, you said didactic in, in relation to Billie Holiday. Yeah. The metaphorical imagery here is like a couple of hammers worth. I mean, there, there are images of, of a bridge and apples are doing a lot of heavy lifting here. Um, and it probably could have backed off on that a little bit too. You can find pieces of a woman exclusively on Netflix. The United States versus Billy holiday is currently streaming exclusively on Hulu. So those were some of the big name Oscar candidates. We'll spend some time down ballot in the best documentary category when we come back. Plus it's the final four in film spotting madness. Stay with us. Everything I have is yours You're part of me Everything I have is yours My destiny I would gladly give the sun to you the sun were only mine I would gladly give this earth to you and the stars that shine everything that I possess I offer you the myths are real war. Come on. And they're the last ones.
understanding. I keep reaching for greatness because I'm built from it. Who bows to who? Nobody gonna stop for me. Kong bows to no one. You're listening to Film Spotting. Kong bows to no one, Josh. There you, you sure You sure about that? I guess no. we'll see. I guess we will see, though I'm not sure if we will find out the way the new film Godzilla vs. Kong wants us to when it hits theaters and comes to HBO Max on Wednesday the 31st. The first big budget spectacle to make it to theaters since Wonder Woman 1984, maybe Tenet. Before that, Josh, do you have any appetite to see Godzilla v. Kong on the big screen since it's been so long? Mindless entertainment. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yes, but that doesn't really reveal anything because I, I would probably go watch a, a rotating film of whatever's on whatever photos are on my phone right now in a sure. theater and be pleased and excited. So, yeah. Well, we aren't going to watch Godzilla v. Kong because we're nerds here on Film Spotting. We're going to be doing our own Godzilla v. Kong pairing. That's right. Godzilla from 1954, which is. I don't think I've seen Josh. I think it's a blind spot other than maybe seeing clips of it over the years versus King Kong 1933, which I have seen. This was your inspired idea, Josh, and I can call it that right now because we haven't recorded it and we haven't seen the download numbers. After we see that, maybe I can call it, you know, something less than inspired. But right now it's inspired. Ah, so so you're not thinking the masses are clamoring. We'll see. For, for Godzilla 54 versus Kong 33. Um, I'm, I'm just kind of insulted that you set this up by saying we're a pair of nerds and followed it with, this is your idea, Josh. Mm. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> well, if the shoe fits and for what it's worth, I'm really into this idea. So looking forward to that next week on the show. Hopefully the listeners are as well. Next week, we will also have the championship, the final matchup for Film Spotting Madness will crown the best film of the 1980s, according to Film Spotting listeners. More madness coming here in a bit. See, Adam, I was thinking of the tie-in there, too. You know, the championship, the clash, the versus, thematically. Okay? It's wow. gonna be it. This is going to be the most downloaded show of the year, I'm yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah, right up there with Movie Manimals. Last <laughs> week, we had five promising young woman Blu-rays to give away. And we've got some winners now to share. Promising Young Woman is nominated for five Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, and Best Actress for Carrie Mulligan. It's available now on DVD, Blu-ray, and digital. The DVD and Blu-rays include exclusive bonus content that takes you behind the scenes with the cast and the writer-director Emerald Fennell. We simply asked Josh, our listeners, to tell us their favorite 2021 Best Picture nominee. And here are our five randomly chosen winners we'd love to give away free stuff travis howard his pick was promising young woman i don't know if he thought that would better his chances of winning maybe or it's his legit pick and that's all he had to say travis howard he just named the title and you know what that's good enough we also have a winner here molly kane favorite oscar best picture nominee promising young woman for molly as well i absolutely loved this film she says it was dark funny surprising beautifully shot and contained important messaging 
Christian Ubilis writes, gunning for the Blu-ray since I just saw Promising Young Woman and have not been this excited for a new director since Jordan Peele's Get Out. In terms of my favorite of this year's Best Picture nominees, the answer seems simple because my number one movie of the year was Sound of Metal. Exquisitely shot to revolve around Ruben's loss of hearing, played wonderfully by Riz Ahmed, no film gripped me more and made me contemplate my own mortality, my own deficits, and the beauty of what it means to not need to fix things. I, however, do need to give a shout-out to Minari, and Promising Young Woman coming in at two and four on my top 10 of 2020 list, respectively. So Christian, it seems, pretty energized probably by the Best Picture announcement. Another choice here for Sound of Metal from Rory Dunn in Vancouver. The best, best picture, do we even have to ask? It is Sound of Metal. Warner West is our last winner Warner says, my favorite of the Best Picture nominees has to be Minari. I'm a big Stephen Yun fan, and I grew up in Arkansas before recently moving out of the state for the first time to Oklahoma City. This film is seemingly made for me. Congrats to our winners, and thank you to everyone who entered. Again, Promising Young Woman is currently available on DVD, Blu-ray, and digital. For our winners, just email feedback at filmspotting.net. Include your address, and we will get that Blu-ray shipped out to you. This week on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, the group is wrapping up their famous Last Worlds pairing. So it's part two. They paired Disney's New Raya and the Last Dragon with 1982's The Last Unicorn. Next week, looking ahead, they'll have a new pairing. It is going to be the new Tina doc about the legendary Tina Turner. That's on HBO opening this weekend. And they're going to pair that with a 1993 Turner biopic, What's Love Got to Do With It? Angela Bassett there, of course, opposite Lawrence Fishburne. Both Oscar nominees for their performances. What's Love Got to Do With It? I have not seen Adam. How I you? haven't either. Mm. Blind spot. All right. Homework before we can listen to those episodes. Then next picture show hosts are Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes of the next picture show post every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. More information is at nextpictureshow.net. Now you teased this on our last trivia spotting event with film spotting family members over on Patreon. And now you are ready to make it official. You've got your next installment of Ebert Interruptus. Been doing this the past few years. A little different format this year, but one I know you're still excited about. Yeah, I mean, like so many things, we're going to take this online. Uh, usually we do it in person in a theater as part of the Conference of World Affairs, but it is going to be a virtual edition, and I've been given the green light uh, to announce the title. It's Lover's Rock, my favorite film of last year. Very recent, I know, but really fits how we're going to have to do it this year. For those who don't know what Ebert Interruptus is, uh, this is a tradition established by the late, great Roger Ebert. For decades, he did this, where he would go through a single film, almost frame by frame, with an audience across the week of the conference. Anyone in the audience could shout stop at any moment, ask a question, make an observation, Ebert would talk with them, and then they would get things rolling again. So, yeah, I've been doing this the last couple of years, and it's just the most unique experience, and I'm hoping we can recreate it virtually. So that was partly why I chose Lover's Rock 2. We're only doing it two days this year. 
April 10 and 11, shortening it. So we needed a shorter film and Lovers Rock 70 Minutes works great. Also, we're going to do this via Amazon Watch Party. It just helps us sync Hmm. up pausing and starting, which is so crucial to this exercise so that everyone can be at the same exact second while we're doing this. So the only limitation for that, you might be thinking, great, I don't have to go to Boulder to be part of this this year. Sure, True. but it's 100, right? Yeah, but there is a there is a limit for the Amazon watch party. So there is an RSVP that's out. Um, we will share that and the link for that in the show notes. And if this is something that's always sounded interesting to you, but you couldn't make the trip, here's a shot at being a part of it. Watch a great film in great detail. Be a part of the discussion. I'm so glad we had we couldn't do it last year. Obviously, one of the many many things canceled. So I'm so glad we're at least able to keep the tradition going. Um, keep uh, keep Ebert's memory alive doing this uh, and get things a little bit back on track this year. So that's April 10 and 11. It's going to be Lovers Rock. Ebert interrupt us. Do I have to know somebody special to maybe get a secured place on that RSVP list? Uh, you're banned, Adam. You're banned. We, we, we just, after the Top Gun, after the Top Gun watch party fiasco, uh-huh. I'm afraid we can't have any of that nonsense. <laughs> Fair enough. Look, I will just say the only good thing to come out of this being virtual this year is the film spotting credit card bill won't be quite as high because you won't be buying drinks for anybody. Yeah, that meetup can get uh, pretty pricey that we do every year there in Boulder. That's for sure. Well, we'll just save it up for when you finally can reconvene with listeners and other attendees of Ebert Interrupt Us. Again, we will have more information about that event in our show notes at filmspotting.net. We mentioned the Film Spotting family over on Patreon. For a mere $5 a month, you get ad-free episodes of Film Spotting, early show downloads, live pre-sales and discounts. That will matter sometime, hopefully soon. And a merch discount. You also get monthly bonus episodes, though we're getting to the end of March and still haven't landed on a topic or a recording date, but we are we are men of our words and we will get to that at some point, Josh. Yeah, this is the, the tightest window. I know we squeaked one in earlier at the end of the month. This is getting pretty yeah. tight. We got a little work to do. It is. You also get access to exclusive events like trivia spotting. We do those monthly. We celebrated film spotting madness the best of the 80s we celebrated the eighth month in a row of doing these trivia events with listeners by having trivia spotting 1984 yes it was an all 80s movie trivia edition we had a couple of new guest captains great to have scott tobias from the next picture show times eliana doctorman join us and we had returning guest captains brian tallarico from RogerEbert.com, dan mccoy from the great flophouse podcast michael phillips you know him from the tribune chris Clemick, pop culture happy hour and how about mariah gates she was new last month josh she came on in february ran away with it led her team to victory. This is Mariah from Movie Phone, formerly of TCM and Filmstruck. She's been on the show before. She comes in, wins last month, and then this month with her team, The Inconceivables, of course, a reference to The Princess Bride from the 80s. They do it again. Two-time winner. Yeah, I mean, talk about needing to ban people. Maybe, no, Mariah's too much fun. I don't think we can ban her. I think we need to have her every time if we can. I agree. And hopefully we will have her back as well as some returning captains and new captains. You do get access to those events only by being a member of the Film Spotting family on Patreon. And they are a lot of fun. You also heard Josh reference the Top Gun extravaganza, the virtual watch last month. 
we will do those periodically as well. Now, April's trivia spotting, Sam wants to call it, I still know what you did last trivia spotting. <laughs> that one, I don't know, maybe we can come up with something else, but it's tentatively scheduled for Friday, April 16th. So it's possible by the time people hear the show, those tickets will be on sale. We will be announcing that soon. Patreon.com slash film spotting. This is blasphemy. This is madness. This is absolute madness. This madness. But this is absolute madness, Ambassador. Why should you build such a thing? Madness. This is Sparta! It is final four time of film spotting madness very quickly. We like to set this up for any new listeners. Film Spotting Madness is our seventh annual bracket-style tournament. 64 movies, just like 64 teams, and only one is crown champion. This year, it is the best of the 80s. This Final Four voting is live right now. Filmspotting.net slash madness. Actually, you can find the polls as well, just on the main page of Filmspotting.net. Voting will close on Monday, March 29th at 11 a.m. Central Time. Let's explain to listeners, Josh, how we got to the final four by revealing how the elite eight played out. We had first raging bull versus this is spinal tap. We heard from Heather Fairman, who's using our preferred mode of adult language here, Adam. Yes. Clock stuffers. How am I supposed to decide between my beloved Scorsese and one of the funniest movies ever? Another comment from Paige in DC. I've been following madness for years now and comedy always gets the short end of the stick. I know Raging Bull is a classic. I know it's an important work, but let's be real. I can quote probably two dozen insane lines from Tap, and I barely remember what Bull is about. That said, if Spinal Tap implodes in the top eight, I'll understand. After all, dozens of movies spontaneously (laughs) combust every year. (laughs) Nice pull there, Paige. And Raging Bull is going to move on, Josh, over Mm. this is Spinal Tap, but man, was it close? Couple thousand votes here, and the margin was under twenty-five. That's right, fifty point seven percent to forty-nine point three percent. So you have here in Raging Bull the number one overall seed, and for the second consecutive week, it's the movie that survived the closest matchup of the round. And I don't think it's won yet on its road to the final four by more than a margin of maybe fifty-seven to 43 if that portends anything about how it will do in the final four well and what a fight down to the wire for spinal tap the the cinderella usually cinderella films or teams will get to a certain point and they just get clobbered right Mm -hmm. just just clobbered like reality settles in but this one down to the wire but yeah in the end the drama takes it over the comedy it does the shining faced off against Blade Runner, Mac Johnson in Alexandria, Virginia, wrote, since the hastily added happy-ish ending to the theatrical cut of Blade Runner uses leftover aerial footage from The Shining, whoever loses, Kubrick still wins. So yeah, Blade Runner, Mac says. Jeff Milo, we assume he's still in Ferndale, Michigan, says, voted Shining only because there's only one version. Rather than three or four different directors, standard or final cuts, pick one, Ridley. I feel like that's some reasoning you could get behind, Josh. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, as Scott Tobias would say, it's extra textual, doesn't doesn't really deal with what's on the screen. But hey, we we go for what we need to to make our vote in the mm-hmm. end. This was a close one. Not quite as close as Raging Bull versus Spinal Tap. But in the end, The Shining took out Blade Runner 56 percent to 44 percent. That does mean then that our first Final Four matchup 
is the number one overall seed, Raging Bull, versus the number four seed, The Shining. Raging Bull's road to the final four was redemption against ordinary people. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade went down. Then John Carpenter's The Thing, followed by, of course, this is Spinal Tap. And for The Shining, it took out Gremlins, A Fish Called Wanda, The Terminator, and Blade Runner. Do you see an obvious, easier path between those two, Adam? I think they're about equal, honestly, Josh, because once you get past that first one, I'm sorry, Josh, apologies, Gremlins and Ordinary People, Mm. Raging Bull had to take down an Indiana Jones movie, a very good Indiana Jones movie, and then we saw a lot of love for Carpenter's The Thing and obviously for Spinal Tap, but put that up against James Cameron's Terminator and Blade Runner. Maybe I give the slight edge there to Raging Bull in terms of having to take down three tougher opponents. Yeah, I'd agree. Then we get to... The other side of the bracket here, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Mm. Steven Spielberg versus Robert Zemeckis and Back to the Future. A very smart comment here from Chad Camello. Kudos to Josh for holding firm in defense of Back to the Future against Adam's whip cracking for Raiders. It's a fun romp, sure, but nowhere near the rich, rewatchable and rewarding experience that Back to the Future remains. But what if it loses? What if Film Spotty Nation thinks it's no good? I don't think I can take that kind of rejection. Well done, Chad. Ron in Bourbon A, Illinois. Maybe the most pithy comment we'll certainly have all show. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Suck it, Phillips. (laughs) Ron finds that useful, perhaps in everyday life. (laughs) So for those who maybe don't know, that is a vote. A very strong advocation for Raiders of the Lost Ark, and we do have a detractor in our friend Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune who doesn't think Raiders is really that amazing, and it seems Film Spotting Nation disagrees with him, at least in this round, because Raiders took down Back to the Future, Josh. It wasn't even close, 71 to 29%. I mean... This does make me quite sad. I would have liked to see a little more of an even match here. I I don't Mm -hmm. think this is fair at all, but all right, whatever. Do the right thing, then faced off against The Empire Strikes Back. Big Dan T left this comment. Is there a better pairing of films that is at once representative of the peak of 80s cinema and also completely resonant with where we are now nearly 40 years later? It's a testament to the quality, insight, and imagination of both films that they have the legacies and present resonance that they do. We also heard from Saurabh Kikani who said, oof, this was really tough, but you gotta do the right thing always. And that's where listeners came out on this, Josh. It was close. But Spike Lee and Do the Right Thing took down the Empire 52% to 48%. How do you feel about that? I mean, we'll talk about your bracket here in a second, but personally, how do you feel? Yeah, it's it's the way to go. I mean, okay. it's, you know, in if all is right in the world, Do the Right Thing takes this tournament. So I'm glad to see that happen. Now, I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit. You like to joke about how you stay out of all the actual madness that goes into film spotting madness, Sam and myself. Our producer, we spend way too many hours going through all these films and debating and moving around the seeds and all that stuff. But will you give me this? Do Mm. you feel like the elite eight we landed on at least, and those again are The Shining, Blade Runner, Raging Bull, This is Spinal Tap, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Back to the Future, Do the Right Thing, and The Empire Strikes Back. Maybe swap in one or two preferred personal choices. But if I said those were going to be the eight films standing at the end of this best of the 80s bracket, would you have said, you know what? I get it. That's pretty good. 
that they're representative of the era? Yeah. The best um, of the era. Yeah. As uh, well. I would say my own personal opinion is is that the tournament went six out of eight. I would take this is Spinal Tap and and probably The Shining actually out of there in favor of other ones. Um, but yeah, six out of eight. That's a okay. that's a, a good representative. I would say you guys, you, you should yeah. feel good about the okay. six thousand eighty three hours you put into yes. this tournament. <laughs> I will take that as a real vote of confidence. So that means the final four matchup, the mm. second final four matchup is. Raiders of the Lost Ark versus Do the Right Thing, the number two seed overall versus the number three seed. So, yes, our top four seeds, how Sam and I thought this would play out is how it played out for the first time in the seven year history of Film Spotting Madness. Does that make you feel good, Adam, about it the work does. you put in? Okay. It does make me feel pretty good, though. I will be honest. I have already bemoaned to Sam multiple times in our Slack that I kind of wish we'd given Raiders the number one overall seed, it would be facing off against The Shining. And the 2-3 matchup would have been probably still do the right thing versus Raging Bull. And then we might get to a final that is Raiders of the Lost Ark versus do the right thing. That feels to me like what the best final matchup would be. But you know what? I don't know that I should be too hard on ourselves for having those seeds slightly different. Of course, Raging Bull is a masterpiece and on its reputation and its stature probably did deserve to be the number one overall seed. But also, we're going to see how the results play out, Josh. And maybe my expectations for Raiders of the Lost Ark and Do the Right Thing were a little too high. Is it true, Adam, that we had upgrade to the ultra galactic package on Slack once we started Film Spotty Madness for you and Sam. <laughs> it is true. Unfortunately, okay. <laughs> we had to spend a lot more money each month just to handle <laughs> all of that bandwidth. So Raiders, we'll go back here for a second. Raiders Road to the Final Four, Josh. It took down Airplane. It took mm. down Cinema Paradiso, Aliens, and then Back wow. to the Future. Do the Right Thing took down Wall Street, The Right Stuff, Ghostbusters, and The Empire Strikes Back. Does one of those strike you as particularly more challenging? Yeah, I think probably Do the Right Thing had the slightly more challenging path. Uh, and now if I remember correctly, we'll, we'll get to this in a minute, but I think it's also a path I didn't predict, right? I, I think even though I voted for Do the Right Thing, I think I thought Empire would take it. So, yes. yeah, I'm torn about that. I, it's, it's, it's the way things should go, but I think that did hurt me. Right. Well, that's a great transition, Josh, into our bracket challenge and the overall listener bracket challenge over 800 predictions submitted. Our leader after the sweet 16 was Greg Pettit from Houston, Texas. And he sent us this nice note. I've been listening to film spotting for a very long time. Somewhere in late 2007 would be my guess. To be honest, I've always thought film spotting madness was kind of silly. I mean, how do you even rank films, let alone pit one against another? I'm embarrassed to admit there have been years when I rolled my eyes and fast forwarded to skim past it. <laughs> you don't say, Greg. <laughs> but this year, for some reason, I gave it a shot. I'm about the same age as the host, so the 80s really were my formative film years. Yes, it's still rather silly, but it's silly fun. The name of my bracket... That's the Archaea, never opened, don't touch it, don't even look at it, is a bastardized quote from This Is Spinal Tap merged with Raiders of the Lost Ark. They are two of my all-time favorite movies that thrill me every time I watch them, almost as much 
as they did the first time. Well, thanks for that note, Greg. And see, Josh, you might even come around yet. Greg <laughs> thought it was silliness. Are you are you in. and Sam proud of yourselves? You've killed another cinephile, Adam, yeah. with film yeah. spotting madness. <laughs> <laughs> we feel great about it. Greg slipped to second after the Elite Eight. Still pretty good. He had Spinal Tap making not just the final four, though, but the championship round. Our mm. current leader is Brett Fisher from Portland, Oregon. He's another longtime listener, a regular trivia spotting player. He correctly picked the final four, and for the championship, he has Raiders versus The Shining. For our internal bracket contest, that's me, you, producer Sam, Madness Godfather, listener Mike Merrigan. Here's how it stacks up currently, Josh. You somehow found yourself in first place between the four of us, and you were fourth overall out of those 800 entries. Wait, wait, wait. What's that? I think I was second. I think I was you know second. What? Don't my, shortchange. My, my notes say fourth, so <laughs> I'm going to stick with that. Look at you trying to shortchange my one moment of glory. <laughs> my one Maybe fleeting moment. Okay, we'll check the records. Well, regardless, the universe has corrected itself. You had mm. Empire Strikes Back, as you suggested. And yeah, I Blade thought Runner, I did. Advancing to the final four. Worse for you, though, you had Empire winning the whole darn thing. Oh, did I really? Okay. Yeah. So, you've dropped to 24th overall. Huh. Probably going to drop a little further then as we get into the next round. And that does put you at second place in our contest. But mm. as regular listeners know, all that matters is that you don't finish fourth. Correct. Yeah. We, we only like to punish in Film Spotty Madness. The loser of our four-person bracket has to watch the next Adam Sandler Netflix film, which I don't think I'm going to be doing this year, Adam. No. Wherever I may land, I don't think I'm going to be doing that. It won't be you, and it doesn't look like it will be me either. I moved into first among the four of us, and how about that, Josh? I really want you to stay in fourth so I can be one ahead of you. I'm in third right now, overall. Vaulted. Third out of the 800 Out of so. the 800, I oh, vaulted wow. to third because <laughs> no. I, did, I did correctly pick the final four, and my pick to win it all is Raiders, and of course, that has a chance. No wonder you said that I was in fourth. This just, <laughs> this just <laughs> confirms that I was in second. <laughs> you might not be wrong. Sam has been on a roller coaster. He was perfect the first week. Mm. He dropped to 71st last week, went up slightly, but he's now at 56th. He does have three of the final four correct. He also chose Blade Runner over The Shining. If the voting continues the way it has, though, it looks like Sam could win it all, at least among the four of us. Maybe not okay. at 800, but he'll win it. And it looks pretty bleak for Madness Godfather Mike Merrigan. He went 0 for 4 in the Elite Eight matchups. He had Aliens, Ouch. Spinal Tap, The Empire Strikes Back, and Raising Arizona. And he had Raising Arizona winning it all. That puts him, Josh, in 578th place. Yeah, that Coen Brothers love has, has been his Achilles heel from fairly early on. For sure. Again, voting in the Film Spotting Madness Final Four round is live right now. You decide which two movies advance to compete against each other for 80s movie supremacy. Vote and leave comments at filmspotting.net slash madness. Your deadline is Monday, March 29th at 11 a.m. Central Time. Shortly after that, that final matchup will go live. Members of the Film Spotting family on Patreon get a first shot at the polls. Then subscribers to the Film Spotting newsletter. More information at patreon.com slash filmspotting and at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. People say that octopus is like an alien. But this 
strange thing is, as you get closer to them, you realize that you're very similar in a lot of ways. That's from the trailer for the Oscar-nominated documentary My Octopus Teacher, which is currently playing exclusively on Netflix. Craig Foster is the subject of the film. He's an experienced nature doc cameraman who documented his months-long, we'll just call it a relationship for now, with an octopus that he encounters while diving in the South Atlantic near his home in South Africa. He sets this up by saying he's was undergoing a bit of a, a midlife crisis, and so he goes back into the water, always dove as a kid, explored uh, underwater as a kid, and so he wanted to be rejuvenated by that once more, and that's where he encounters this octopus. The film itself was directed by Philippa Ehrlich and James Reed. Not too long into watching this, Adam, uh, Another, we could say nature documentary, unconventional nature documentary came to mind, and I began to see, as my octopus teacher went on, that it was almost the inverse of this other one, but I couldn't wait to ask you what you think about these two movies in tandem, because I do think there are a lot of parallels, and I know that you love the filmmaker, the documentary filmmaker, who made the other one. So so a bit of a, just a guessing game quiz here. Do you have any sense of what documentary I'm thinking of? Absolutely none. So this should be great. Okay. (laughs) Off the top of your head, this will be good stuff. Grizzly Man, the Werner Herzog doc. It seemed to me that it was the inverse in that. Here's a, you know, that tracked a grizzly bear enthusiast who got Mm -hmm. too close to his subjects to disastrous results, I think we can say. And here we have this diving enthusiast who, through these encounters with this particular octopus, ends up being saved rather than mauled. And it's also exploring in different ways this the complicated relationships humans have with animals and when that crosses a line how mm-hmm. it crosses a line i don't know now that now that those two are in your head what do you make of the pairing well i may need to improv as we go here josh and unpack that a little bit but i would also say in your comparison you've got the complicated nature as well of the documentarian to its subject and its subject matter. I think that's a fascinating aspect of this film, My Octopus Teacher, as well, because you've got a character here, a figure in Craig Foster, whether it was in his mind from the beginning or not, or something that just organically developed, he is making a movie about this octopus. Now, he's not the documentarians who wrote and directed it, but it's his material. It's his experience. He created this entire experiment, if you will, of diving into the same water every day for a year and interacting whenever he could with this octopus. So he is in his own way setting out to create this piece of art while at the same time becoming friends with the octopus. He certainly has an emotional attachment to its survival But he also has an artistic attachment and need, you could say, for it to survive as well. So what do you do when your friend and your star are, let's say, being stalked by a predator? And he he voices this openly. Those damn pajama sharks. That's it. Do you somehow intervene? Do you try to help? Do you play God effectively and prevent this natural cycle of life from playing out? Or do you, as a good, righteous documentarian, just passively observe and 
we kind of get a little bit of both from Foster. He cheats a little bit. Yeah. And and there's another prickly documentary ethical question at play here, too, which struck me is might Foster, by disrupting this octopus's natural rhythms, by by drawing it out of its den to Mm -hmm. play, to quote unquote play, is it is he putting it at increased risk? Good from point. those predators, you know? So there's there's a lot of those interesting questions at play here. And I do think, um, I think this is a good documentary. I would recommend it to people. The, the underwater imagery is mm-hmm. gorgeous. The way it just captures, there are sequences where we see other alien-like underwater creatures in their natural environment. Um, that is astonishing. I do wish that it was a little more interested in these questions you and I have both raised. And I don't know if that's a limitation of Foster narrating this, um, you know, and kind of telling his own story. You have to think that, um, you know, as directors Ehrlich and Reed had cameras down there because a lot of the footage is of Foster. So there's someone else in some of these scenes filming him. As he's interacting, there are other scenes of just the environment that have to be Foster's work. Sure, though, did it occur to you, Josh— as it did to me that maybe that's part of what I was saying, where maybe Foster always kind of knew this was going to turn into a movie and he always had that hope. So I actually was kind of giving him the benefit of the doubt that those cameras were placed there by him as opposed to a third party. But it's probably more likely that it was the the filmmakers, the documentarians. You know, we do see him setting cameras up right. underwater, so it's possible, but that would be... An astonishing combination of of filmmaking skill and just luck (laughs) that some of this imagery would be captured. My best guess, having not researched it, is that at some point of this encounter, um, he brought in – because it goes almost – over a year, correct? Is that right, mm-hmm. I think? Because mm-hmm. there is a countdown of, of the days. At some point in this encounter, um, he did recognize, as you said, the the potential in the material and may have brought in or invited or connected with the other filmmakers to get some of this additional footage. But but yeah, it, it'll be interesting to find out the, the story in terms of the production of this. Um, but yeah, I think some of those... Again, going back to that distance question, which is another documentary ethical question, right, is is when you're so involved as a subject in the film you're making, um, are there some questions that as a viewer you wish were being – I think they're asked here, but maybe yeah. pursued a little more um, intensely. And I noticed – Probably as we were coming to the last third and you could see kind of the emotional narrative taking shape, right. which I don't I don't want to spoil um, what happens. Then I was pretty clear, OK, we're not going to go there because this movie is now interested in a specific emotional climax that um, to go back to where we started this uh, this episode, I think there's nothing necessarily wrong with it, but hits a particular Oscar beat. That is likely why it's in the group of doc nominees, hmm. because it does offer this sort of emotional experience that uh, is a little more broadly appealing, maybe, you want to say? I, I mean, I think you and I can both think of a couple of other documentaries this year that we we thought were um, you know, pretty deserving of getting this honor, I would say, ahead of my octopus teacher, as much as I liked it. Your cynicism amazes me, Josh, oh, come on. because you know I'm me well enough by now. You must be talking about, and this movie, I guess, had its had its tentacles around me or something. I don't know what you want to say more than you because I totally fell for it. And you said the word earlier that's really key here. It's established from the very beginning of this in the doc and even by its title. The expectation is that we're going to see the story of one man's salvation through his interactions with and relationship with a sea creature. 
So the stakes of it are, in terms of the emotional arc, in terms of the intellectual arc, in terms of me just sort of watching it, paying really close attention to the actual storytelling, what what I believe is being put in front of us and how it's being put in front of us. The question is, is this octopus so extraordinary, such a miracle of the natural world that we're going to believe this redemption tale? And the answer for me, it sounds like for you too, mostly was yes. The answer for me was definitely yes, even if it does all feel very neatly packaged. Like I sort of equate it to maybe a magazine feature, kind of a memoir piece where someone reflects on a certain time in their life and the lessons they learn from this whole experience. Here, we only know the impact of this relationship and this year-long process because Craig Foster tells us what the impact was. He tells us what it did to him how it transformed him. We see some scenes that suggest he's telling the truth, but it's mostly there as as B-roll to go along with his narration. We don't actually see what he was like, for the most part, with his son, with his wife, how it altered his behavior in day-to-day life. But the octopus itself is so compelling and consistently surprising that I did accept everything Foster said. There's Josh a scene with one of those pajama sharks on the scent of this octopus that, you know, could win one of our rap party awards for action scenes of the year, you know, in terms of my investment (laughs) in the scene and the way it's cut and what you're hoping to happen and what you fear might happen. She kept still and tried to hide. And you just saw the shark swimming on the periphery, picking up a scent. I thought, oh no, it's it's all nightmare happening again. Maybe even just a scene of the year candidate. I don't know if this is the one you're thinking about or not, or it's more at at the end of the film when it really all does come together and kind of the catharsis of it, if you will. But Foster and the octopus, let's say they do physically touch each other. Oh, yeah. Which is a lot. Without, without being immature about it. It's it's kind of weird. I mean, I'm watching it going, is this even safe? What what is he doing? What is this this interaction really like? But there's one shot. I'll just leave it at this because I really don't want to give it away too much for people who see this movie. There's one shot where Foster is going up for air that I thought was majestic. It's one of those moments, Josh, where cinema is showing you something that you've never seen before. And will likely never experience yourself, but the moment itself, the way it's captured, is cinematic, inherently. I think the word you're looking for uh, for their interaction is cuddle. They they do some cuddling. They do some uh, cuddling. And, and you know, yeah, it, it sounds silly, but it is remarkable because I don't know that we've ever seen... I mean, just just think about, you know, when you see someone at the zoo interacting or, or somewhere with a lion or the, things that should not be happening. Right. We've kind of we have seen that to a degree. And so it's not quite as, um, you know, surprising, but we've never seen even the, the first time that they do connect where the octopus actually extends a tentacle to touch his finger and hold on to it. I mm-hmm. mean, that is it takes your breath away because we. 
because octopi, I think they are, are very strange appearing creatures for one thing, but also we've never seen something like this before. So, so yeah, I did, I did find it compelling on that level and I found it moving as well. I mean, I don't have a heart of stone. Yeah. I think, <laughs> I think this is a very moving film. And I think those questions you're talking about is, are we going to believe how much this means beyond just an actual yes. experience out in the wild? That's another um, connection point with Grizzly Man, right? Because this is what Herzog does, is he inflates these experiences um, to these philosophical, you know, pretensions. And that's what makes Herzog great. I think in the case of Grizzly Man, he he almost overdoes it in his pontificating. Um, your mileage will vary. Some people, you know, but you know, that's why we joke about Herzog too, right? Is because mm-hmm. he could he could look at a pen lying on a table and and give it the meaning of the universe. Um, and so I think that's a little bit what is what Foster is attempting to do on a more personal level here with my octopus teacher. He doesn't quite he doesn't pontificate or wax quite as poetically as Herzog does, but it does add this other level experience to the story that we're seeing. Because a lot of this other stuff, even the action sequence you talked about, which is is great. I agree. The filmmaking there is fantastic. That's your standard nature doc sequence. Like when the animal that there's always the point where the animal that you've been watching is going to get pursued. Right. right. And, and the music, the drums kick up and yeah, it's yeah. like, no. Um, so, but they, they film it beautifully here and it has this extra level that you're talking about because of Foster's personal cuddly experience. <laughs> I think that is the right word for it in terms of grizzly man, just circling back to that. Of course, other differences would be that I don't know that we watch Foster and doubt his sanity the way we doubt Treadwills. True. Certainly, right? And there also really never is the threat to the subject here in Foster like we feel yeah. for Treadwell. But you make an interesting distinction in terms of talking about Herzog himself. And he's someone who, despite sometimes that didacticism, and yes, he is trying to provoke. I think that's what he's most focused on is he'll throw out some of these phrases to provoke you, but isn't really trying to give you a very clean or clear Mm -hmm. arc and profound message. And my octopus teacher, like I was suggesting earlier, is a very neat movie. It it tells you from the beginning what it hopes to accomplish. And by the end, I think it accomplishes it. But along the way. There are enough surprises and yeah. there are enough moments of true wonder for sure between these two creatures, Foster and the octopus, and just that octopus living in its natural environment. You know, you talked about his safety. You know what I did worry about is because we see scenes of the octopus itself hunting, like pouncing on these crabs mm-hmm. and so forth and then cracking them up. And so I'm thinking, I'm trying to remember, we don't get this information and you know the the animal nerd in me wishes maybe we'd gotten a little more science about how it lives we get a very little bit of that but i'm trying to think like how I, how do they eat i don't remember how they eat thankfully my my younger daughter who's totally into this stuff um reminded me well they have a, like a beak under there it's almost hmm. like a bird's beak is, and that's why they can crack a crab shell so then i'm watching him like hold this thing in its hand in his hand right or even like you know it's it's beak first on his belly and i'm thinking this could go like this whole dock could take a really bad turn at any moment You're uh, right thankfully it doesn't and, and it does craig craig <laughs> you know is not only saved but unscathed my octopus teacher currently playing 
exclusively on Netflix. And not only is it a very good doc, but it is, I will say, only 89 minutes. So, yes, you don't have much of an excuse not to see My Octopus Teacher. Contra Mercurio, y veo un aviso que decía, se necesitan personas de 80, 90 años. Estoy loco, qué diablo, que no me ah, convencía de 80, no. 90 años. <risa> So, Adam, you managed to catch up with another of the Oscar-nominated docs, The Mole Agent. This is available to rent on most platforms, and it's free to subscribers of Hulu. It's directed by Chilean documentarian Maita Alberde, and it follows an 83-year-old spy named Sergio as he infiltrates a retirement home. So just knowing that little synopsis there, Adam, my, my first question is, how? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, is this like a Borat scenario? Alberti's right. camera is is there at the retirement home documenting Sergio. So uh, is this really a secret mission? What, what do we got here? <laughs> You're providing a lot to unpack here. And actually, truthfully, some of the questions you're asking kind of get at why the mole agent maybe didn't work for me quite mm. as effectively as it has for a lot of other people, at least based on its Rotten Tomatoes score. And I'll tie it back for a second to the movie we just talked about, My Octopus Teacher. Similar in that you've got men here, main characters, subjects who are on a mission of discovery and who learn profound lessons through that experience. But as we said, Craig Foster, he set the mission for himself. And this guy, Sergio, he's not really a spy. He just signed up for a job. He signed up for a purpose. There is this other aspect that frames the whole story, this investigation, and a client has hired a PI to somehow infiltrate this nursing home and specifically see how her mother is being treated. She has suspicions that maybe she's being neglected and that things are being stolen from her. So the PI just hires Sergio. He puts an ad in the paper and you have all these older men, and this is consistent with the overall kind of message of the film. You have all these older men who are feeling lonely, who kind of wake up every day, not really sure who they are anymore, and they need something to latch onto. And Sergio gets picked to do all this secret investigating to pretend to be someone who's being admitted to this nursing home. And with his iPhone and his spy pen and his glasses like James Bond or whatever that can record, he's going to gather all this intel and ultimately reveal whether or not something nefarious is going on here. To really talk about whether or not the movie works, you kind of have to get into where it ultimately goes. And in that sense, it's hard to discuss. And I'm going to try to be as vague as possible here, but still get at the, the heart of how I felt about the movie. I think a lot of people are probably going to be won over by this movie because of the way it surprises them. The degree to which that investigation conceit is or isn't a red herring. I'd really like to watch The Mole Agent again and see if I'd react more favorably on a second watch where I could focus more on the movie I got versus the movie I expected because Mm -hmm. I was definitely distracted by the mechanics of it all. Instead of pondering some of the more profound questions it raises about how we treat the elderly, their loneliness, I was thinking about the logistics of the camera crew, 
that was documenting life in the home, separate from what Sergio was doing and what ruse they used to establish that, what the expectations were of the residents of the nursing home, what they knew and what they didn't know, what Sergio really knew going into this or not, and how forthright the documentarians were with him. Did this client, this supposed client, exist at all. I'm not even really sure, Josh. And there's some stuff at the beginning with the music and the shades closing and the lighting where they're really trying to set it up like it's it's almost this film noir. And as I said, the degree to which it proceeds down that path or upends that will be the key factor and whether or not this is a movie that people are really taken by or maybe find even a little bit gimmicky, perhaps. There are delights, though, along the way, Josh. The sensitivity and the compassion he shows one struggling woman at the home who is struggling with senility, but she's got this this lovely smile and such a gentle manner, and she always seems a little bit scared and is always alone, and the the empathy he shows for her and the links he goes to interact with her are really touching. There's another great moment where he is reporting back to the P.I., And his report for the day (laughs) is all about how they were celebrating like an anniversary of the nursing home and he was named king of the nursing home (laughs) and everything that that entailed. And he basically isn't given the investigator anything to work with at all. It's just about how great of a day he had. And it really is a wonderfully comic twist on the scene that we've watched in any undercover movie before, right, where the cop maybe gets yelled at by his captain because he's not staying focused and he's getting too involved and he's getting caught up in the life. This is that movie's version of that scene where it's, you know, we had ice cream and then I got to I got to ride in a car and it was lovely. And, you know, you put me on the spot comparing the last movie to another documentary that I like quite a bit. Grizzly Man, I'll give you one here. Does anything that I'm saying about this film remind you of any, I don't know, maybe recent documentaries that you've seen, Josh? Well, I mean, Dick Johnson is Dead is, is, has come to mind a couple times. I don't know if that's what you're going for, though. No, that's a good connection, but I'm actually going more in terms of the blending of reality and fiction or artifice, Bloody Nose, Empty Pockets. One oh, of your favorite okay. Movies yeah, of last year. Right. Where, sure. You know, you've got this closed knit group of people at this bar, this community, and the circumstances in which we are seeing them is totally artificial, but hopefully offering us some kind of reality. And here, for these people in this home, everything about life in the home is completely real. Nothing fabricated about it. It's everything around it that's happening. It's the artifice of it all in the framing. So I would actually suggest, Josh, that you might really appreciate this movie or at least appreciate wrestling with this movie in the same way that you did bloody nose empty pockets for me i found it maybe a little bit too contrived and a little bit too strained for me to really find it ultimately as moving as i hoped it would it does sound fascinating and your point about you know asking who's got the camera you know where is the camera those are exactly the questions where I started to wonder what was going on with bloody nose, empty pockets. You know, there was a surveillance camera shot in particular where I was like, okay, now how, how did they actually get this? Um, and I think that's, you know, that's, I don't know if you'd call it a hurdle, but it's something we do bring, as you're saying, Mm -hmm. to our experience of watching documentary films. These are things we never ask of fiction films. We just accept them. There's a level of acceptance you, you give to a 
fiction film that you might not in a documentary. And I think that's maybe good. These are probably questions we should Mm -hmm. be asking, but it's just what makes the experience so unique. No, that's a good point. I mean, you talk about suspension of disbelief sometimes with narrative movies or fiction films, but to some extent, that's that's something that's created in our minds and isn't real because you know it's a narrative piece and you know that you have to suspend disbelief. But when you're watching a documentary and you are so keyed in to these real people in these real scenarios and all those questions start to nag at you a little bit about how it's put together, Mm -hmm. that, that can be a challenge. It was a challenge for me here, like I said, though I do imagine that if I watched it again and I got to set that all aside... I might feel differently. That is The Mole Agent, and it's currently available to rent on most platforms, and it's free to Hulu subscribers. So, Adam, that is the end of our show. If listeners want to keep the conversation going, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Adam is at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. In the show archives at Filmspotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. And at Filmspotting.net, you can vote in the final four round of Film Spotting Madness, best of the 80s, it's Raging Bull versus The Shining. You have to choose and do the right thing versus Raiders of the Lost Ark. To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Out on digital this weekend, a documentary about Tina Turner on HBO. That's Tina in limited release, Nobody, starring Bob Odenkirk as a normal suburban dad with a secret. The screenwriter is Derek Kolstad, who also wrote the John Wick trilogy, which may give you some idea as to what Odenkirk's secret is. It's directed by Ilya Neischiller. The Truffle Hunters, also a movie I feel like we've talked about seven times on the show, but deservedly <laughs> so. A Another great documentary yes. one that I wish had been nominated this year that is hitting theaters in Chicago as well as being available in as well as being available on streaming platforms next week here on film spotting. Yeah, it's Godzilla V Kong, but it's film spotting style Godzilla 54 versus Kong 33 in the tradition of film spotting madness. Adam, we are each going to have to choose a winner, right? We are. Yeah. Okay. Do you do you know the winner right now, Josh? Um, no, honestly, I don't. I love, love, love both of these films. I've rewatched Godzilla 54 already and have to get to King Kong next. And it's super close. I mean, it's honestly going to come down to this for me, this, uh, this latest rewatch. Okay. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.